0: last time I preached, which seems like such a long time ago now, I talked about the conflict that exists within the created order, and how it exists across the spectrum, even in the church. There is this dynamic tension that seems to be unescapable. And nowhere is that conflict more conspicuous than in the tension between St. Paul's opus on justification by faith, as found in Romans, and St. James's position that faith apart from works is dead. From a church historian perspective, either Pelagius was Jamesian or James was Pelagian. No matter where you land in that apparent juxtaposition between faith and works, there are several realities in Holy Scripture that are undeniable. If you look closely at the lesson from Genesis 2, and we did that actually um, in the Genesis study last Sunday evening, you find that in that creation narrative, God's expectation for how the man and the woman should live is quite explicit. In the verses that precede our lesson, God instructed the man, Adam, which means man, that he is permitted to consume fruit from any tree in the garden except for one exclusion, which is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that tree. Why not? For in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. There is one thing that God requires of Adam, and he insists on it no matter where he finds him. The demand is for obedience. Consequently, there's a branch of Christian theology which is called ethics in Protestant circles and moral theology in Catholic ones. And it has to do with how we make choices in living our lives. And boy, is it important. If you follow the narratives throughout the Pentateuch and the historical books of Hebrew Scripture, books such as 1 and 2 Chronicles, 1 and 2 Kings, um, 1 and 2 Samuel, and the like, the theme of obedience and disobedience recurs again and again. The essence of the Mosaic Covenant is obedience to the law. There's no way around it. The New Testament does not eradicate that emphasis in any way, shape, or form. It reframes it contextually, but Jesus said that he did not come into the world to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And there's nothing that St. Paul says that amends that declaration. In the lesson from Genesis, God determines that it's not good for man to be alone. So, in the story, God removes a rib from Adam and creates a woman to be a helper slash companion. In the narrative, gender is defined as a dimension of being. By the end of the story, the narrator says, For this cause shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And in the last verse of chapter 2, which was not read as part of the lesson today, I'm not sure why the lectionary people omitted it, and the man and his wife were naked and were not ashamed. The Hebrew word for woman is ishah, which is a feminine noun that is translated woman, female, or wife depending on the context. Notice that the narrative does not say anything about God creating a helper for Adam whose name is Frank. And the two of them became one flesh. No, that's not marriage, regardless of what the Supreme Court of the United States may say about it, but then I digress. The point is that a directive is given concerning the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and man is expected to conform his behavior to that demand. This part of the narrative is about obedience. Jonathan Haidt is a social psychologist formerly faculty at University of Virginia and currently at New York University. His research has to do with socio-political groups that we call conservatives and liberals. We've been hearing a lot about that the last couple weeks. He says that there are five moral principles that conservatives subscribe to. They are principles associated with care-slash-harm, justice-fairness, intragroup loyalty, obedience to authority, and purity. In contrast, liberals are concerned primarily with the first two, caring and social justice. If you've been following the confirmation hearings in the Senate, you were able to see Haidt's moral model at work in a most heinous way. If you ask the question, why do liberal leftists hate Christians? The answer is that in our moral reasoning, Christians understand the importance of Heights principles 3 through 5 loyalty, obedience, and purity. We advocate loyalty to a tradition established and maintained by the faithful, obedience to a set of prescribed standards, and sexual purity. We organize our experience in the world around a sacred text. They organize their experience around the economic and political philosophy of Karl Marx, where everything in one way or another relates to social justice and fairness for whatever social group may have presented itself as being beleaguered and victimized. They are on a perpetual search for victims and the perpetrators who are allegedly victimizing them. Even people on the left are recognizing that there are problems with liberal dogma. Steven Pinker, a linguistic psychologist at Harvard who also fashions himself to be a flaming atheist, says that we need to recover the ethos of the Enlightenment. Steven, no we don't. That's where the problem started in the first place. The only way we need to get back to... The Enlightenment is if we're going to repair the damage that the Enlightenment set in motion. There are even some denominations who consider themselves, quote, Christian who have drunk the leftist Kool-Aid and have refined Christianity into just loving everybody and being fair. Loving everybody and being fair is necessary, but it's not sufficient. The reality is that there is a structure. Jesus attests to that structure in the lesson from Mark's Gospel. (coughs) The context of the lesson is an encounter between Jesus and the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a socio-political group in first-century Palestine. When you read the Gospels, you hear about them frequently, um, hardly ever in a positive vein. Sociopolitical groups are dangerous no matter where you find them. The Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus on a matter of law. The focus of the discussion is divorce. The law of Moses allowed for a man to divorce his wife. If you had a wife and you were finished with her, could you send her on her way? The law of Moses allowed for that with the proviso that you gave her a certificate of divorce. Provide her with a writ, she's on her own. This lesson is an example of how Jesus reframed the law. Jesus understood the social vulnerability of women in the Middle East in first century Palestine. Jesus explains that Moses allowed for divorce because of the hardness of their hearts. Then Jesus appeals to this narrative from Genesis 2. God's plan is now, and always has been, that, quote, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. What God has joined together, let no one separate, end quote. Later, Jesus and his disciples go indoors, and the issue is raised again by the disciples. Jesus takes his lesson one step further. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if the woman divorces her husband and marries another, she's committing adultery. That's a hard lesson. What's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that divorce is always a matter of sin. There's no escaping it. There's no way to rationalize it. There's no way to intellectualize it. There's no way to dress it up. Clear and simple, divorce is a consequence of sin. That's what Jesus says when he references hardness of heart. Let it be clear that in this teaching, Jesus is safeguarding the well-being of women. Being a divorced woman was a horrible condition to find oneself in, especially in first century Palestine. Even in our time, divorced women live at a lower socioeconomic level than married women as a group. Notice it in the lesson, or in um, it's actually not in the lectionary lesson, but in the uh, gospel book, it is included in the reading about the children. Right? It's interesting that Jesus's admonition about children which, by the way, was also very radical for first-century Palestine, immediately follows his teaching about divorce. As a mental health professional for 42 years, I can tell you the biggest casualty in divorce is the children. So let it be clear That in this teaching, Jesus is safeguarding the well-being of women and children. For a woman, your husband was your lifeline to security and stability. If he cut you loose, you were in dire straits. The New Testament is very clear about what a Christian marriage should look like. Wives are to respect their husbands, and husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That's the standard. Nothing less is acceptable. (coughs) excuse, Excuse me. There are people today who want to make everything in relationships about power and control. If you don't like what someone else is saying or doing, it's perfectly acceptable in the minds of some for you to use intimidation tactics and to speak all manner of evil about them in as mean and cruel a way as you possibly can, and you're justified in doing so. How horrible is that? So what's the solution to all this? It's a mess. There's no way to have watched any of those hearings before the Senate Judiciary Committee and come away with any other conclusion. This was a mess. It was an embarrassment to American democracy. So what's the solution? Hebrews 2 lays it out for us. The book of Hebrews depicts Jesus as our great high priest. If you follow that narrative from Genesis through chapter 3, you get a glimpse of how sin came into the world. And regardless of what the left Marxists and others want to say about sin, sin is a reality. In 21st century America, as much as it was in first century Palestine, and as much as it was in that garden in the narrative from Genesis 2. And left to our own devices, we die in our sins. And there's nothing that we can do about that. Sin is lethal. and any container with it should have a skull and crossbones on the front of it with an FDA warning. The narrative in Genesis 2 says so, and divorce is a function of sin. For that matter, all broken covenant is a function of sin. The Marxist left wants to see everyone as a victim, but they don't want to see us as a victim of sin. They hate us because we want to bring the conversation back around to sin. Carl Menninger, a a psychiatrist back in the 1970s, asked the question, whatever became of sin? Because it disappeared from the landscape of the American church. And it still baffles me to this day that that book had to be written by a mental health professional, who happened also to be a Presbyterian elder, and not A person in a collar. They hate us because we want to bring that conversation back around to sin. After all, it's what Jesus would do, isn't it? Just like he did it with the Pharisees in Mark 10. We are lost in our sin. And our liberation from sin does not lay with scotus. This travesty that occurred in Washington the past several weeks was precipitated by a panic about the reversal of Roe v. Wade, as if Roe v. Wade is a redemption from sin. Except that the left doesn't believe in sin anyway. In their anthropology, we are all good. I watched a lot of their proceedings the past several weeks, The people are all good except for the victimizer. And that position is a real hard sell for me. And I hope also for you. I know that the victim is also the victimizer. There's a book that they use in the counseling program over at Liberty entitled, Hurt People, Hurt People. I also know that our redemption is exactly what Hebrews says it is. And this is what is said. But we do see him who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation, Through sufferings. Through sufferings. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. You see, Stephen Pinker is wrong. Some would say about many things. Recovering the mindset of the enlightenment will not save us. Our salvation is only in the name of the Lord of heaven. For as the author of Hebrews says, he is our great high priest, a propitiation for our sins, but not ours only but also the sins of the whole world.